Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today we have two guests joining us. One is a familiar guest. We've spoken to Miriam a few times, but we've got Miriam Johnny and Yamini Rao here today. So Miriam and Yamini, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great. So let me introduce their backgrounds for you. Miriam Johnny is an associate professor and the Don L. and Mabel F. Dickinson Professor with the University of New Mexico School of Law and is our reporter for the Task Force Women in Criminal Justice. And Yamini Rao is the Deputy Public Defender at Santa Clara County Public Defender's Office and is an advisory board member to the Task Force Women in Criminal Justice and also the Data Committee Co-Chair. And so we've asked Miriam and Yamini here today to speak to us once again about the task force work for the Women in Criminal Justice Task Force. And that is because we have had recent movement in this. It's been a productive and fruitful year for the task force with first the publication of your initial findings, Toughen Up Buttercup versus Time's Up. But now you've had the publication of your final report, Pulling Back the Curtain which was published both by the section and the ABA journal and listeners will link to that, of course. But Miriam, why don't you tell our listeners what the high level differences are that the readers will see between that initial findings report, toughen up buttercup versus time's up. And then now your final report, pulling back the curtain. Sure, Emily, I'd be happy to explain. So pulling back the curtain documents the results of a follow-up survey that the data committee of the task force conducted and reports out what the results were. So there were two goals for that follow-up survey, which was administered at the end of 2020, the last few months of 2020. The first goal was to document participants' responses to gender equity in hiring, retention, and promotion in the criminal law profession in a more effective way. And secondly, to seek feedback on how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting their careers. So the survey was very similar to the one that the survey participants completed or were invited to complete before they testified before the task force, but it was adjusted by the data committee to reflect the goal both of trying to seek feedback on COVID. And also there were questions added that attempted to assess respondents' commitment to the practice of criminal law. So one of the pieces of feedback we got from our first article was it would be helpful to know from people who are really in the trenches for a long time and planning to stay in criminal law, you know, what their feedback is, as opposed to folks who maybe aren't sure they're going to stay or haven't been in it as long. You know, so we had some questions to it to assess that commitment level too. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Miriam. And it is really exciting that we're at this point. So let's learn a little bit more about the survey. Yamini, can you tell us about the survey and how you determined its design? And then Miriam, we'll come back to you. And if you could then tell us about the administration and results of the survey. 
so first of all, thank you so much for having me. The survey process was sort of twofold. The first being synthesizing our questions from the initial survey that went out to people like me who are members of the listening session. And then also I had personally written a survey for my own office internally in order to sort of, before I testified, in order to understand the collective thought about what it was like to practice criminal law as a woman and for some of us as women of color and what some of the drawbacks were, what some of the support systems we had. And in designing that survey myself and finding the responses the way that I did, I thought synthesizing the two surveys would be the best method. But again, like Marion was just saying, you know, COVID hit and that made a big difference because we didn't even know COVID existed when we first did our listening sessions and my internal survey with my own office. And so I think that that really informed the second survey, the post-listening session survey, I should say. It really informed it because the practical task of being a woman lawyer, especially many of us who are practicing in the courtroom, just completely changed, especially for women who were facing childcare issues and other home life issues that they generally could have separated when COVID wasn't, you know, in our faces and in our everyday lives. So I think that that, again, the survey process was really also looking forward as to how, how people were feeling about whether or not they could continue. And that was the lens with which myself and Sarah Glassmeyer and Miriam and Anne Macy, we, we looked together to try and develop that survey based on that lens. Could we, as women and women of color in the criminal justice field, really be forward-looking right now as to our careers when suddenly these huge drawbacks and lines have been drawn such that we don't always feel that way. So that was our process. Nice. Thank you. And then, Miriam, if you would tell us about the administration and the results. Sure, Emily. So I've been the main person communicating with all the women who testified and participated in listening sessions over the course of the past couple of years and have been really grateful to build relationships of trust with those folks, not just women, by the way, people who are non-binary and gender non-conforming. And because of that, I sent out the survey that we designed as a committee and we received, so we sent it out in the fall. We figured because of the reasons Yamini just mentioned about caregiving being a real obstacle at the beginning of the 2020-2021 school year for those who had children going back to school, we decided to wait until late October and administered the survey. I sent three emails inviting women. Again, there were 144 women who had, over the course of our 12 listening sessions, participated in those And so we sent it out to all of them. There were a few whose emails had changed or, you know, for whatever reason, we couldn't get in touch with them. But we did have a response rate of 49 respondents, which we were pleased with. That represents 43% of those who would have already been graduated from law school at that time. And the respondents were incredibly diverse in terms of geographic location, where they live and work their role in criminal law, you know, so we heard from judges and prosecutors and defense lawyers and women in nonprofit organizations doing criminal justice advocacy. We also had diversity in terms of graduation year from law school, racial and ethnic identity, and LGBTQIA identification. So respondents live and work all over the country in rural, urban, and suburban settings. 
if for the interest of their privacy in the report, we didn't list exactly where they work, but you know, as the person reviewing the data, I felt comfortable to report that in all regions of the country. And they also represent, I should say, tribal, state, and federal level offices. So we really feel proud and excited about the diversity of those 49 respondents. One last point, I did mention that the law school graduation years were diverse. So the respondents graduated anywhere from 1971 to they're graduating this year. And those were a handful of, less than a handful actually, people who had helped us you know, participate as students in the listening sessions. Their ages ranged from 23 to 77. The report goes into greater detail in terms of the racial and ethnic diversity, but you know, I'll just share that 11 women or approximately 23% identify as Hispanic or Latinx. And in terms of race, we had five respondents representing 10.4% of the responses identify as American Indian or Alaskan Native five or 10.4% who identify as Asian, Southeast Asian, or South Asian. Four women respondents, or 8.3% who identify as Black or African American. And one respondent who identifies as Middle Eastern or North African. And four who identifies multiracial or multi-ethnic. You know, so about 50% identify as white and five as other. Again, this is all detailed in the report, but I think it's worth noting because some of the other surveys, really, you know, limited surveys of women lawyers that have been done don't necessarily achieve that level of diversity that we've been really proud of. Right. It has certainly been a priority of this task force that we've talked about, which is really valuable to a lot of women in the profession or those that identify as women. So, for our listeners, you know, if you're listening to any of this and feeling like you're a little behind in the work of the Women in Criminal Justice Task Force, we have had several episodes where we've been talking more in depth about the nature of these listening sessions and their goals and the makeup of the task force and what their focuses were. And we even had a conversation around the initial findings that I mentioned before. And so those are in our episode inventory. And I invite you to listen to those if you're unfamiliar with our discussion today. There's much more conversation to be included in this. So hopefully you've been keeping up with us. And if not, I invite you to go back and get caught up. So now thank you both for giving us more understanding of the survey and what its piece was in the work of the task force and what it was aiming to accomplish in addition to the listening sessions. And we have talked about the unique methods of the task force before, like I was just speaking to, which laid the foundation of its work with listening sessions, as you just said, Miriam. So we know the impact of these listening sessions has been wide and lasting. So I'd like to turn some time over to the both of you, if you wouldn't mind sharing some examples of this impact, things that you've seen or participated in with listeners. So Yamani, how about we let you go first and then Miriam, if you would follow up. Sure, I'd love to. In the listening session that I participated in, which was here in San Francisco in the Bay Area, it just happened to, during the lunch break, fell into conversation with a few other women, all at the time happened to be criminal defense attorneys, and three of us were public defenders. And we just got to talking about how we felt just being able to sort of I don't want to say air out because that's not exactly it, but being able to let go of some of the 
stressors that we have sort of held in as women of color practitioners and being able to speak about them, but not just speak about them, hear other people's and other women's, their own experiences and have it resonate so deeply because it seemed to be our own experience. And we decided as a collective of four to begin the Women of Color Defense Network, which is a group of women that come together monthly. So we took a break over the summer, but for the last year, we came together every month over Zoom and we were from all different Bay Area offices and sometimes even through California. And we've had some people from the East Coast join us. And essentially it was a forum that developed that allowed us to cover different topics that really do affect women of color specifically in the workplace, such as hiring, retention, promotion, recruitment. And we could talk about it in this free, very safe, very confidential space. And I learned so much more than I even contributed from being part of this space. We've had supervisors from different offices come to speak about their journeys, talk to us about tips and tricks in how to navigate microaggressions and move past them and confront them. And the feedback has been essentially that this is a space that was lacking. And due to the listening sessions and thanks to the listening sessions, this space has been opened up for us. And that has been a huge change in my own practice and my ability to sort of navigate my life as a woman of color and a criminal defense attorney, specifically a public defender. So that I have to thank the ABA for giving me such a tremendous opportunity and bringing me together with some fabulous women in the Bay Area. Yamini, thank you so much for sharing that experience with us. It's so wonderful to hear that that has come from your experience with the listening session. Certainly, I know one of the goals of the task force to create that community and create that space. So thank you for sharing that with us. And Miriam, now I'll turn some time over to you as well. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, Yamini, for sharing and for modeling, I guess, what can be done when women, women of color, you know, can work together. So I commend you for that. We're so impressed and supportive of your efforts. And I wanted to share one other, I mean, there've been many examples of folks that testified before the task force, but I wanted to share one that I'm most familiar with is another example of the power of being able to speak one's truth and feel that you are supported as you do that rather than dismissed or diminished. Um, you are actually elevated by being able to voice your challenges. And so another person who's done some similar work to Yamini, I would say, and this is really especially impressive because of the systemic nature of her approach is Albany Burns. And Albany Burns is a senior deputy prosecuting attorney for King County, Washington. She attended a listening session that we hosted in Seattle in 2019. And Albany is incredibly committed to making her office a more inclusive and equitable place. And so one thing that she's launched is a diverse working group of women. And it includes her, you know, she's a representative from the criminal division at the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office. There's a civil attorney from their civil division, their chief of staff, the assistant chief of staff, and a former administrative staff member who's now in human resources. So you can see how thoughtful and careful that compilation of members is in terms of potential to effectuate change. 
So what they did first as a group was discuss the Toughen Up Buttercup article. They all read it and discussed how it applies to their office and kind of identified how specifically the challenges for women of color, as well as concerns about corruption, you know, affect them. And so the first thing that group decided to do was to create a three-hour workshop for women employees in the prosecutor's office. And so they reached out to leaders in the office, encouraging them to attend, women leaders in the office, and to encourage others to attend. And that workshop is called Women's Lab Projecting Credibility and Confidence. And so they hired somebody, a career coach named Suzanne Weller, who came out to, you know, facilitate this workshop to talk about recognizing when we as women give our power away, how to project credibility, how to deal with toxic people in meetings and other important items. And so that first workshop was so successful and filled up immediately that they ended up hosting several additional ones to make sure that everybody who wanted to participate was able to. So out of that workshop process, you know, they're designing some other efforts to start a culture change in their office. So they're working on creating a women's affinity group, also a financial planning and empowerment for women space that might be a lecture or, you know, some other kind of support opportunity. They also want to talk about allyship and provide training on allyship and how allies can step in and interrupt bias and mistreatment couple other points. They're planning to partner specifically with men to talk about how they can be allies for women. So they're going to do allyship training, both for women and for men. And then they're going to talk about one of the things in the task force and that I talked about in the Tough Nut Buttercup article was the importance of not just mentorship and finding meaningful mentors, but also sponsorship, finding people who behind closed doors will say good things about you and recommend you for opportunities and proactively look out for you. So they're doing a sponsorship and mentorship program for women in their office. So, you know, I could go on and on. They're doing some really exciting research as well, some gender bias research. Well, these are really exciting examples and models for others to follow in taking these reports and these findings and making the work of the task force, their own, furthering the mission, which is a big part of the goal of the task force is addressing those challenges that women in criminal justice face. So it's wonderful to hear those examples of that impact. It's incredible. I'm sure very gratifying to both of you having been big players in that, especially you, Miriam, for all of your hard work and putting all this together. Certainly, want to take a moment to acknowledge the heavy, heavy lift it was to come up with how these listening sessions should look and the work of getting all of the participants, getting the survey built and getting it administered and getting the participation. So no small thing, a significant contribution that your work's not done yet. As I understand it, there's still more to come. So Miriam, Would you, before we wrap up today, tell us what comes next? Some might think final report might be the end, but it's not. So tell us us what to expect. (laughs) Thanks, Emily. I'd be delighted to share. So we are planning to host focus groups to share this research that we conducted and to pressure test some of the suggestions 
for systemic reform that have been developed by the task force. So on November 18th, in conjunction with the Criminal Justice Sections Fall Institute, we're going to hold a day-long session for people who have been identified as real leaders in the criminal justice space, people who have influence on systemic reform, you know, either through national organizations for prosecutors and criminal defense lawyers and all sorts of equity groups, as well as in the federal government. So we're pulling those people together. We'll be meeting at the ABA and we'll be facilitating in small groups conversations about this work and pressure testing, again, some of the suggestions that we've made to see whether they could say to us, well, the idea of a wellness room is simply implausible. We cannot create a wellness room in every one of our offices, but we understand what that's trying to achieve. And let's figure out what are some other ways to achieve the goals that a wellness room could offer. So, and by the way, that's one, I hope that one is not going to be identified as implausible because it's just been mentioned so many times by so many women that it would be a really helpful space when they're dealing with the trauma associated with really the work that they're doing, being so close to challenging, challenging life stories and this justice system, which can really be unfair. It's really hard to deal with all of that and to have a quiet space where people can kind of collect their thoughts is so important. But anyway, we'll be hosting those focus groups. I'll be again, kind of updating our writing about that. And I'm pleased to share that the Minnesota Law Review is going to be publishing the work from Pulling Back the Curtain, as well as an update from those focus groups early next year. And of course, Emily, I will share that with you once it's available. So yeah, we're hoping to really tighten up the recommendations through those focus groups, and then we'll be presenting those recommendations next year to CJS. And with the ultimate goal, hopefully, of promoting some ABA-level policies that will, you know, have an impact on the profession as a whole. That's great. So more to look forward to as usual. All right. Well, listeners, once again, this is Miriam Aranjani, Associate Professor and the Don L. and Mabel F. Dickinson Professor of the University of New Mexico School of Law and Yamani Rao, Deputy Public Defender at Santa Clara County Public Defender's Office. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.